Good morning. Good to be with you this morning. And I would invite you to open God's Word to 1 Peter 5. And I'm going to be reading verses 6 through 12. So let's give you the reading of God's Word. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Sylvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. This is the reading of the very word of the living God. The title of this morning's message is An Adversary in Adversity. So let's pray. Our Father in heaven, as we gather in the name of Jesus to render unto you the glory that is due your name in the service of worship. Lord, as you have inhabited the praises of your people, as you have inhabited the prayers of your people, so Lord, now may you inhabit the preaching of your word to our growth in grace and the knowledge of Christ our Lord. In his name we pray. Amen. All right, when you think of uh, demons and spiritual warfare, uh, what, what comes to your mind? Uh, maybe you think of that movie, The Exorcist. I remember seeing that in the theater a long time ago. I remember Linda Blair uh, in that movie, and it was so freaky, uh, the way they did that. Uh, her body convulsing and her head spinning, and the priest was struggling to exorcise that demon from her. Maybe you think of that. Or maybe you're a little more biblically minded, and you think of Jesus as the start of his public ministry. The very first thing the Spirit did was lead him from his baptism to confront Satan in the wilderness. And throughout Jesus' ministry, you think of those confrontations with demons. Well, in either case, probably none of us have experienced um, either of those kinds, anything like that. So the whole idea of spiritual warfare might seem a bit strange. But then we turn to God's word and we read this. Be sober-minded, be watchful, your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, resist him firm in the faith. Now, Peter was writing to Christians, 
who were scattered and away from home. They were exiles, sojourners, pilgrims, because they were being persecuted. And then they're being persecuted. They're going through all sorts of suffering and challenges and trials. And so Peter writes to them to minister to them. And the very first thing he writes to them about these, uh, these people who are away from their home was that you have an inheritance in heaven. It is reserved for you, and you are preserved for it. So Peter begins on this note of encouragement, and he begins by lifting their eyes to Jesus and what he had done for them. He reminds them that they're suffering it might seem like it's interminable, but he describes it as a little while. And he says that this momentary suffering that you are experiencing will one day give way to the full enjoyment of God in all eternity. And then he speaks to them of very, pra- very practical matters. They're in exiled, but they bear the name of Jesus. So he speaks to them about things like holiness and obedience, faithfulness, as they live out the lordship of Jesus Christ in their lives. And what he says is that where you are, as you live this way, you can bear witness to Jesus Christ. And there might be some who will ask you, saying, why do you, why do you have this hope? Where does it come from? And to be a witness for Jesus Christ. And he kind of sums it all up at the end of chapter 4 when Peter says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. In other words, he says, kind of a bottom line, trust and obey. Entrust yourself to this faithful creator and continue to do what is good. Now, throughout his letter, throughout the entire letter, Peter speaks of things that we would expect to hear. He reminds us, he reinforces things. He introduces things that you would expect disciples of Jesus Christ to hear. Ordinary things. But then, as he comes to the end of his letter, he talks about the devil and spiritual warfare. As though these these topics were normal. Fitting in with everything else that he has said that was normal. Well, we look at other letters in the New Testament. And we see them also writing about the devil and about spiritual warfare. James writes about it. John writes about it. Paul teaches extensively on spiritual warfare. In fact, in his letter to the church at Ephesus, every chapter, there are six chapters in Ephesians, every chapter has something to do with spiritual warfare. Paul's um, second letter to the Corinthians talks a great deal about, in fact, it's really a training manual in spiritual warfare. And it's very interesting because we look at 1 Corinthians. And we, well, we look at the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians. And boy, they were a mess. They, the whole thing was a mess. They were going through, there was heresy and immorality, division, party spirit, all kinds of troubles. 
And Paul speaks to them to minister to them. But what's interesting is that when we move from 1 Corinthians, where we see these things described, to 2 Corinthians, it's like pulling back the curtain and seeing this spiritual adversary who is behind these things, stirring up and fomenting harm in the church of Jesus Christ. Every New Testament writer says something about the spiritual opposition we face as believers. Our Lord Jesus, as he's uh, finishing up his time with his disciples in the upper room, he prays for those disciples, and he prays for those who will believe, and that includes us and all the generations of Christians throughout the ages. He prayed in that prayer in John 17, He's praying to the Father, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. There's something we need to see here. In fact, when Jesus taught us to pray, what was part of that prayer? Deliver them from evil. So what that says, friends, is that there is something in the Christian worldview that is constituent of it that we do not want to miss out on for our, we don't want to neglect, is a better way to put it, for our walking in this world. Spiritual warfare is not something that is uh, extraordinary to the Christian life. In fact, it is ordinary to it. And in those times of our lives, when we experience adversity and conflict, the the trials, the hard times of life, those are shown to be battlegrounds, frontline battlegrounds for dealing with Satan and his intentions for us as disciples of Jesus Christ. Well, this morning... We're not going to look at all that, but we are going to look at two principles, two aspects of what it means for us to be engaged in spiritual warfare. First, spiritual warfare is conducted in weakness. Spiritual warfare is conducted in weakness. Now, Jesus' ministry involved confrontation with demons, confrontation with Satan and forces of evil. And that's no surprise. The writer of Hebrews, in describing why Jesus uh, took on our humanity, he says this, Jesus was born into the world so that he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. John in his first epistle, gives a purpose statement for Jesus' incarnation when he says this, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And we see that played out in the Gospels, don't we? We see Jesus confronting demons. Now, the religious leaders of Jesus' day saw these confrontations with demons, and what they said to him was... um, It is by the power of Satan that you cast out demons. But Jesus said, that is absurd. 
Because a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. And what Jesus says is that what you are seeing is you are seeing an other kingdom come into the world. You are seeing a kingdom of righteousness and joy and peace, a kingdom of life and light, a kingdom that runs counter to this kingdom of darkness, a kingdom that will be an everlasting kingdom, a kingdom that will subdue and overrule, and this kingdom of evil will be done away with. And Jesus' authority over demons gave proof, evidence, that indeed the kingdom of God was in their midst. That's what Jesus said. He says, if I cast out demons, then indeed the kingdom of God has come among you. A counter kingdom, a redemptive kingdom. In that, in, in exchange with the religious leaders, Jesus said this, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Now, there are some who have taken that as the way that spiritual warfare is conducted. The way we conduct, uh, way spiritual warfare is conducted in evangelism is that you need to go in and name the demons, figure out the territorial spirits, bind the demons. And it's also, I uh, said, that's the way that we, can, the way we do counseling is we basically bind the, bind the devil. But the epistles provide a different approach for the conduct of spiritual warfare. The way that we conduct spiritual warfare is not with our head held high and our chest puffed out in some sort of bravado and bluster. The way that we conduct spiritual warfare is in humble submission. How does that work? One of the principles, in fact, a basic principle of spiritual warfare is that it is conducted in weakness. Spiritual warfare is conducted in weakness because when we are weak, then we are strong. Look at what Peter says. Verse uh, 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Now, Peter says that on the heels of what he said in verse 5, that God opposes the proud. Think about that. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And then he calls upon us to humble ourselves before him. When the Apostle Paul was struggling with pride, uh, God, he, he writes in uh, 2 Corinthians 12, that God gave him a thorn in the flesh. The thorn in the flesh was to humble him. And Paul asked God three times, take this thorn away from me. But here's the answer that was given him by God. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And so Paul changed his tune, 
when he said, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. The scripture tells us that weakness is the conduit to the strength that we need for living the Christian life. Now, how, is it, how does this weakness express itself? It expresses itself in humility, in humbling ourselves. Now, what does it look like for us to humble ourselves? As What does it look like for us to conduct spiritual warfare by humbling ourselves? Let me just mention uh, three observations. Humbling ourselves involves submitting ourselves to God and the trials that he brings to our lives. See, what Satan does, and when we look at Scripture, we see this, Satan's goal is to distance us from God, to alienate us from God. Satan's goal is to get us to shake our fists at God as we face the difficulties and the trials in our lives. A friend of mine, uh, she uh, just asked for prayer because her 27-year-old daughter um, was just diagnosed with, I think, stage three breast cancer. And my friend described something, what it's like, and it sounds like this, this young woman is in for quite the ordeal. And my prayer for her, actually even more so for, my, for both the mom and the daughter, is that God would protect them from reviling God. That God would protect them from the evil one who would work to distance them from God as they go through this difficulty. What spiritual, the humility and spiritual warfare takes the model of our Lord Jesus Christ who said, facing the greatest trial, the greatest adversity of all, not my will, but your will be done. That's humbling ourselves. Secondly, humbling ourselves involves casting our fears, our worries, our cares upon him because we know that our Father in heaven cares for us. See, one of the things that Satan does, one of his tactics is to get us to question the character of God. Isn't that what he did in the Garden of Eden? Didn't he say to Adam and Eve, I don't know, is God really, isn't God depriving you of something here? You know, God doesn't have your best interest at heart. And that is a standard satanic tactic that gets us to, character, to question the character of God. In fact, what we'll do often is we will figure out God's character from the trial rather than the way he reveals himself. But Peter says to cast our cares upon God because he cares for us, even Mr. Trial. And the third thing to humble ourselves is to recognize that our overcoming is accomplished not by our being strong, but by our resting in Christ. Although I guess that's being strong, isn't it? It's just different from what we would expect. Is that we find our strength not from some inner reserve. We find our strength from Jesus Christ. Now, when it says that Jesus bound the strong man, we want to we recognize that 
that is not our example of the way to conduct spiritual warfare. That is our confidence. Christ's binding of the strong man is not our example to emulate. It's our confidence as we conduct spiritual warfare. So humility is the acknowledgement of weakness that finds strength in God. Humility is the fountain of repentance and reliance. Humility is the fountain of repentance and reliance. You know, in that uh, prayer of renewal that we find in the Old Testament. Listen to the fountain. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, then will I hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. And I think that land means anything from your heart to your home to the church. It's not a nationalistic thing. All right, so spiritual warfare is conducted in weakness. Secondly, spiritual warfare is conducted, and this is really strange, by standing firm. Spiritual warfare is conducted by standing firm. Now, for those in the military, and they are, let's say, overseas, they're on the field of battle, there will be those times that they engage the enemy, and there will be these skirmishes. But even when those skirmishes are not happening, they need to be on guard. They need to be aware of their surroundings because they are where? In enemy territory. That's exactly what Scripture says, where Scripture says that we live, in enemy territory. Jesus put it that though we are in the world, we are not of it. John says this, and this is a mind-boggling statement uh, when you think about it. He says, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. That's why Martin Luther, in his hymn, A Mighty Fortress, says, Though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us. See, that's part of our worldview. And Peter speaks of the devil prowling about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And Christian, because you bear the name of Jesus Christ, you are the food that he seeks. Peter calls us to be on high alert. He says in verse 8, be sober-minded. You need your wits about you. Be watchful. Keep your eyes open. We cannot let down our guard. Spiritual warfare belongs to ordinary Christian life. And what that means is this. When we live our lives, we need to account for an enemy. We need to be aware and to account for an enemy who, as it says in Genesis 4, crouches at our door. His, his desire is for us, but we must master it, this sin. So what that means is that in your personal life, in your marriage, in your ministry, you have an adversary lurking and intent 
on distancing you from Jesus Christ. How do we engage the enemy? Probably the most familiar passage uh, is in Ephesians chapter 6, where Paul uh, speaks at length about spiritual warfare. And there Paul says, we engage the enemy by standing. Let me just read a couple things here. Put, uh, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore. In those just few verses, over and over again, he hits that nail. He raises that flag. Stand, stand, stand. But then we come to Peter. What does he say? He says in verse 9, resist him firm in the faith. Well, is he giving us kind of a plan B, an alternate approach to conduct a spiritual warfare? Now, actually, when Paul says in Ephesians to withstand in the evil day, he uses the same word that Peter uses that is translated resist. It's basically a two-part word. Uh, stand and then anti, stand against. Anti is their prefix. Stand against. The sense is that we have a spiritual enemy confronting us in adversity, and we need to stand, keep our position, stand firm to resist, to oppose, to stand against. So standing is how we wrestle, how we combat. Now, <clears throat> that seems a little confusing, doesn't it? Usually when we think of uh, some sort of warfare, we think of all sorts of uh, uh, military action and uh, plans and aggression and all that. But the way we conduct spiritual warfare as the church militant is by standing. And it makes sense when we realize this. Standing has to do with our union with Jesus Christ. That's what Paul has been talking about all throughout Ephesians. In Christ, all the blessings, everything about our, the power are bound up by our union with Jesus Christ. Peter has kept the focus on Christ throughout his epistle. And now what they are calling us to do is stand. Stand is... Uh, Basically, the same has the same sense as for uh, Paul, for Peter, as abide does for John, where we abide in Christ for all that we need. So it's speaking of not going out on our own. It's speaking of living out our union with Jesus Christ. So we take our stand in Christ. And Paul says that, doesn't he? He says to be strong in the, in the Lord and in the power of his might. We stand firm in God's grace. That's what Paul, Peter says in verse 12. He's saying, as by Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. All right, let's get down to some brass tacks here. How do we do that? 
How do we stand firm in the Lord? Well, when we look at the intelligence report God gives us of our enemy, the devil, we see, uh, we're, we see the way he does things. We see his character. We see his tactics. We see his schemes. We learn that he is the accuser of the brethren. We learn that he is a, a liar. And the father, when he lies, he speaks his native language. He's a liar. We learn that he is a tempter. And so we see something of this reconnaissance, intelligence report God has given us of our enemy. So how do we stand against our enemy in these things? Well, against Satan's accusations. And what are his accusations? Well, his accusations would be something like this. Let's say that uh, you are wrestling with some sin in your life or there is some guilt that is weighing upon you that you cannot shake. And Satan keeps this front and center for you and weighs you down with it to drive you to despair. Now, the Holy Spirit convicts you of your sin to drive you to Christ. Satan drives you to despair, seeks to to drive you within yourself to see to, so that you will be hopeless. So how do we answer? How do we stand against Satan's tactics of accusations? We stand firm in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is an end of our sin. We stand firm in Christ, uh, clothed, uh, cleansed by his blood, clothed in his righteousness. And that, so Satan, the accuser, is left without charge because that charge has been answered in Jesus Christ and him crucified. How about Satan's deceptions? His deceptions. And there, our lives are littered, I guess they always have been, littered with deceptions fed to us by our culture, fed to us by a godless society that will say, this is what is good. This is what is true. This is what is right. This is what is noble. But the question for us Christians is, what does God say? Against Satan's deceptions, we want to stand firm in the revealed truth of God. Or as Paul puts it, uh, we want to stand firm, bringing the word of Christ to dwell in us richly. And how about his temptations? Against Satan's temptations, we are to stand firm in the resurrection power of Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul puts it this way, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. In all these things, we stand in Christ. Let me wrap things up. We engage in spiritual warfare just as part of our regular Christian lives. There's an enemy who opposes us. That spiritual warfare is ramped up in times of adversity. One reason is this, because when we see these things happening in our lives, we wonder, we question God. We have doubts. We have despair. So, Christian, let me ask you, what adversity are you, do you find yourself in right now? I mean, are there 
wrestling, wrestling with things like some besetting sin, like pornography or something like that? Are you in a conflict in your marriage? Are there financial things that are weighing down upon you? What is going on in your life right now? Think about that and remember this, that in this adversity, you have an enemy who is seeking and actively going about your ruin to distance you from God and to inflict spiritual harm. This enemy prompts you to ask, does God really care? Is God really good? Is God really able? Is God real? Peter learned the lesson the hard way. On the night when Jesus was betrayed, Jesus turned to Peter and he said this, Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded to have you, to sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. Remember how Jesus reacted? He lifted his chin and he puffed out his chest and he said, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And before the night was out, he would deny Jesus three times. And Luke, in that recording of that third denial, said evidently Jesus was being led across the courtyard. Peter looked up, and there was Jesus looking right at him. And he went outside and wept bitterly. And now we come to Peter's letter. And evidently Peter learned the danger of pride and the need for humility. He learned to take seriously this spiritual adversary. And he learned what it meant for Jesus to pray for him, that his faith may not fail. And he writes to us to resist the devil and to stand firm in our faith. Friends, know this that your Lord Jesus Christ has dominion over Satan and he ever lives to intercede for you so that, I'll just read this, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, and strengthen you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I pray even now, as this word has been sown, I pray that you would protect us, that the evil one might not pluck up the seed. Oh, Lord, help us by your grace to be strong in Jesus Christ and in the power of his strength. Amen.